Well, if you have your copy of scripture, go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 10. We are making our way through this book. We are rapidly moving through this book. I kind of wish I'd put the brakes on a little bit. It's, it is my favorite book in the scriptures. I think it is one of the most rich with gospel truth for us. Um, I'd remind you of what James Henley Thorn, Thornwell, the great Southern Presbyterian, said, if the book of Romans tells us what we need and what we get in Jesus, the book of Hebrews tells us how we get it how it becomes ours, how it works, the mechanics of the gospel, the, the inner depth. We're brought into the most holy place through the veil to see what Jesus has done for us. And so we are in Hebrews 10, and we're at the climax of the argument of this book that Jesus is a better priest, a better sacrifice, of a better covenant, that Jesus is better than everything and everyone in the scriptures, that he is God over all, that he is God manifest in the flesh, that he made a once-for-all sacrifice for sins, And we are picking up on the writer's concluding thoughts here in chapter 10. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 14, Hebrews 10, 1 through 14 this morning. And before we do, let's pray and and ask God to be present with us and bless the preaching of his word. Our God, again, we cry out to you how little we pray. And so we ask that even our praying at this time would be an encouragement to us to trust you. We have nothing We know that unless you build the house, uh, they labor in vain who build it. And so even in preaching and hearing, and maybe especially, O God, in preaching and hearing, we look to you for your favor and blessing, that you would make your word to work in us, that you would heal us of all of our sin and all of our backsliding, that you would draw us near to Jesus Christ, that you would Make us to love him more who first loved us and gave himself for us. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would mediate for us and that you would lift our thoughts up to you and to glory and that you would build us up in the truth of the gospel. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 1, and again, the writer is picking up on his argument from chapter 9. For since the law... That is the Old Testament law, Mosaic law, had a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of those realities, who is obviously Jesus Christ. It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to have been offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you take no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I come to do your will. He does away with the first, that is the old covenant sacrificial system, in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God, 
waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, I don't know how much interaction you've had with unbelievers, especially in North America. I've, I've had the opportunity to witness over the past 10 years to a lot of unbelievers, for which I'm grateful for. And it's interesting, after a few years of sharing the gospel with people, you understand that there's about 15 arguments that everybody uses to try to suppress the truth of Christianity. There's only about 15. You can all be, the Bible was written by men, and they can all be distilled down into different forms of about 15 arguments. And one of the big ones, and I see it more and more now on the internet surfacing, is there were no such thing as Christians before Jesus came. And so Christianity can't be true because there were no Christians. And how could Christianity be true? There were Jews. That wasn't Christianity. Obviously, those people have never read the book of Hebrews or the Bible. Obviously. Because when we come to a chapter like this, Hebrews chapter 10, what we see is really the apostle writing and telling us that everything in the Old Testament didn't work out of itself. The sacrificial system, the priesthood, the temple worship, all of that was a type of the one who would come and do away with sacrifice by the sacrifice of himself. And that it wasn't bulls and goats and that it was never bulls and goats that God ultimately used to save old covenant Israel, but it was always them looking forward to the coming redeemer. We've seen that already. We're going to see that in more depth and detail this morning that this is one of the most marvelous arguments in helping us understand that all of those animal sacrifices could do nothing for the people. They couldn't cleanse the hearts of the people. They couldn't actually make atonement for the people. And what the writer is going to do is he's going to tell us the significance, maybe in a more powerful way than he does anywhere else in the scriptures. He's going to tell us the significance of the incarnation, why it was important that the Son of God created a body for himself, and what that body being nailed to the tree means for us in the gospel, what it means for your consciences that are often burdened with the guilt of sin. And the writer's going to tell us, notice this, it's actually interesting what he says, very very powerful words in verse 2. He says, if those Old Testament sacrifices could have taken away sin, there would be no more consciousness of sin. There would, in our minds, be a finality that we know all of our sins have been paid for, the sacrifice has been dealt with. Objectively, there's forgiveness and peace with God. And that is what the writer is going to bring to bear this morning. One of the things that's striking about the New Testament is that um, almost every book in the New Testament, I think Martin Lloyd-Jones pointed this out, almost every book in the New Testament is written to a people who have not yet fully come to enjoy the benefits they have in Christ. Almost every book in the New Testament is written because the people to whom it's being written have not yet come to fully enjoy the benefits that they have in Jesus. I think that's what this chapter specifically is teaching. And so we're going to see a couple things this morning. First, we're going to see the efficacy of Christ's blood. Then we're going to see the prophetic testimony to his sacrifice. And then finally, we're going to see the present and future benefits of that sacrifice. Well, notice that the, the writer is picking up on that argument that he's carried through in chapter 9, and, and he's told us that everything in the Mosaic economy, everything that happened under Moses in the giving of the law, in the cultic, that's just another word for worship, the cultic experience of Israel and their worship, all of that was typical, and all of it was pointing to Jesus, all of it. 
and that none of them should have ever trusted in it, and that the problem, the problem with so much of Old Covenant Israel was that they trusted in the sacrifices. They trusted in what they were doing. This is our great problem, by the way. You know, we live in one of the first societies in the history of humanity that I know of in my study of history that doesn't have ritualistic sacrifices going on in different religious pockets. The rest of human history, there is something deeply innate in man that feels that he has to bring a sacrifice to God. Now, God appointed sacrifices. We're going to talk about that. But there's something in men where they feel like I can only be in favor with God if I am offering God something. God will only accept me if I am giving him something. If I'm doing something for him, then he'll accept me. Maybe it's money. I think in our day, sadly, a lot of people think if I just give money, that's my pleasing sacrifice to God. And, and if we do that, what we end up doing is the same thing that the unbelieving Israelites did when they trusted in the lambs and the goats and the bulls instead of trusting in the one to whom they pointed. And the sacrifice that we need is the sacrifice of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And that's the sacrifice that God provides, and we don't actually do anything. That's the beauty of Christianity. You know, every other religion is do, you need to get doing, and Christianity is it's done. It's finished. Jesus hangs on the cross, he finishes the work of redemption, and he says it is finished. It is paid in full. It is complete. We are complete in him. And so the writer is going to tell us that those sacrifices in the Old Testament were never meant to do anything really in and of themselves, but to point beyond themselves. Now, why? Why couldn't a lamb or a goat or a bull? Because God appointed all those sacrifices. He specifically gave Israel instructions. He said, you've got to get a perfect lamb, unblemished, no spot. You've got to get so many turtle doves and pigeons and bulls, and everything needs to be done precisely. And even some of the sacrifices had to be eaten in part. And there were these very precise details about the sacrificial system. And then we're told it was never about that, and they couldn't do anything for you. Here's, here's the reason why. Because we're rational beings. We are moral and rational beings. Animals, to the best of my knowledge, are not. Yes, they have some sense of consciousness, I understand that, but an animal cannot set, be a sufficient sacrifice, substitution for a moral being made in the image of God. And actually, it's very interesting, the writer of Hebrews is not going to say it wasn't an animal, it was a man, because it wasn't a mere man. It wasn't an animal, it was God at the cross who made the sufficient sacrifice that even another human couldn't substitute themselves for you, but only the God-man could. And so the contrast here about the power and the efficacy of Jesus' blood is drawn out in that contrast between what the animals couldn't do because they couldn't ever be an adequate substitute for you and for your sins, and, and even another man couldn't, but Jesus would come and the Son of God would be that for you. And that his blood would be so powerful that he would end sacrifice by the offering of himself once for all. So that the only sacrifice is the once for all sacrifice of Jesus. And that no more blood has to be shed. And that, and I think this is enormous. I want to look with you at, at verse 2 again. He says, otherwise would they not have ceased to have been offered. So if the animals had been sufficient... They wouldn't have continued to have been offered because if they had worked, if the animals had worked to take away your sin on the altar, the burnt offering and the sin offering, then they would have ceased. There would have been no more. It would have been done. They would have cried out, it is finished. 
Jesus comes like a general in an army and he looks out as a general would look out on his men and Jesus essentially says to the sacrifices, get out of the way, I'm here, I will do it. I will do it myself because I'm the sufficient sacrifice. And notice, notice that what the writer of Hebrews is interested in is how can you be perfect before God? It's interesting how many people who won't admit that they're sinners will admit that they're imperfect. Well, we're imperfect, we make mistakes. No, we're sinners. You can call it imperfection. The Bible calls it sin. And the question is, how are we who are so full of sin able to become right before God, right worshipers? How, how right now do I know that God is pleased with my worship? I know it because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And even the old covenant saints who had to go in and they had to sacrifice the animals, they didn't even have the fullest experience that you can have because they didn't yet see the finished sacrifice of Jesus. They looked forward hoping for it, but they didn't see it. We look back and we see that it's finished. The blood has been shed. The blood of an infinite being has been shed. And the worshipers who are covered in that blood are now in a right standing before God. And our worship is accepted. And even our imperfections in worship, my bad music, is covered in that blood. Everything that we do, our wandering thoughts in worship, if we are trusting Jesus Christ, even our wandering thoughts are covered by that blood so that God accepts our worship because he accepted his son. And that's the big point of the book of Hebrews. And notice that the writer goes on there in verse 2 to say um, that if those animals could have done what, what we needed done and what Israel needed done, they would have ceased to have been offered. And then notice he said, the worshipers having been cleansed would not have any more consciousness of sin. Now, this is a very hard phrase. I wrote last night on social media that I'm excited about preaching about the sacrifice of Jesus and how there's no more consciousness of sin. And someone that follows me wrote back, I'm a Christian, but I'm conscious of my sin every day. It's good that they feel that tension. There's a tension. The writer of Hebrews is saying the sacrifice of Jesus took away the consciousness of sin objectively. And what that means is that while Nick Batsig is conscious of lots of sins in his life that he has to repent of and confess every day to God and has to be washed again in that blood, there is an objective sense where all of Nick Batsig's sins and all of your sins have been paid for in that blood. And objectively, I know that the sacrifice has been made, that sin has been canceled, the debt has been paid, that legally there's nothing left to do. There is no more consciousness of sin. I want to read to you what John Owen, the great Puritan, said about this. It's very helpful. Um, He says about this phrase, no more consciousness of sins. What does that mean? He said the believers should have no conscience agitating, tossing, disquieting, perplexing for sin. No conscience judging and condemning their persons for the guilt of sin, so depriving them of solid peace with God. It is the conscience with respect unto the guilt of sin as it binds over the sinner unto punishment in the judgment of God. What Owen's saying is all of you have a conscience. Everybody has a conscience. We know when when people say, I'm not perfect, they're saying, I feel guilty. And the Bible says we are guilty. And the Bible says Christ paid for that in his death on the cross. And that now the believer, the one who's in Jesus, 
ought to have peace of conscience. And the only reason we don't have more peace of conscience is that our faith wavers and we really don't believe that Jesus is the sufficient sacrifice. And when we turn from Jesus to sin, we are turning to sin in unbelief. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying, let me turn you back to him in faith. Let me turn you back. When your conscience is unsettled, when you acknowledge and you feel condemned, when, when Satan comes in and accuses you, he's the accuser of the brethren, and you, you think, I can't be a Christian, how could I do that? I can't believe I did this. The writer of Hebrews says, go back to the sacrifice that took away the consciousness of sins. Go back to him. Know that he is sufficient. Rest in him. Trust him. Cast yourselves on him. Put yourself under that fountain. Zechariah says that, that at the cross, what Jesus would do is he would open a fountain for sin and cleansing. He would open a fountain for sin and cleansing through his shed blood. And so there's power in the blood of Jesus. There is a sufficiency in that blood. And then notice the writer uh, now moves in verse 4 where he says, uh, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin to tell us how it is that sin was taken away. Notice what he does. He, he quotes in verses 5 through 7 a little verse out of Psalm 40. Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. And that's a psalm written by David a, a thousand years before Jesus came. David wrote this a thousand years before Jesus came, and yet the writer of Hebrews is going to say it was the Spirit of Christ prophetically working in David, and Christ was speaking in that psalm, and this is what he says. He says, Jesus says to his Father in Psalm 40, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Now, what's interesting is if you were an Israelite living in the days of David, and you were still going to the tabernacle and you were sacrificing. And then under Solomon in the temple, you were sacrificing animals. You were taking them to the high priest. You should have known Psalm 40. You should have known Psalm 40. Psalm 40 is not a New Testament passage. It's an Old Testament passage. And there in the Old Testament, a thousand years before Jesus came, David says, Jesus says through David, sacrifices and offerings you don't desire. Essentially, he's saying the blood of bulls and goats does nothing but a body you have prepared for me. Jesus is the servant of the Lord. He is the one who gives himself over to his heavenly father in perfect service. He is the suffering servant. In, in the Old Testament, in Exodus 21, this passage is picking up on an illusion where um, if a servant lived in his master's house and he loved his master and wanted to stay with him and pay off his debt and he finished his debt and he could go free, that he could go to his master and say, I love my wife, I love my children, I love my master, I want to stay with you, I want to be in this house and, and part of this family forever. And the master would take that servant and he would take him to a doorpost and he would pierce his ear through that showed that this man had voluntarily said, I am going to be a, a member of this family and a forever servant of this family. And what Psalm 40 tells us is that that is a picture of Jesus saying, I love my people. I love my father. I will be the forever servant. I will take a body to myself. So that what, what happens in the womb of the Virgin Mary, I want you to listen very carefully. What happens in the womb of the Virgin Mary is that God begins to knit together the very body that is going to end all sacrifices, the very body 
that will secure a perfect, obedient life for his people, a representative life for his people. Notice, notice this. He says in verse 5 and 6, a body you have prepared for me. And then he says, I say I have come to do your will, O God. You know, while the cross is the epicenter of Christianity, the fact that Jesus Christ lived a sinless life for 33-some years is astonishing. It's astonishing. I'm 35 years old, and I couldn't even begin to tell you how much sin I've done. I couldn't even start to tell you. It would fill oceans, probably. How many wrong thoughts, words, actions. Jesus Christ lived a perfect life, always did the will of his Father, always obeyed his Father's will for his life, never did one sinful thing, and then he obeyed him all the way to the point of death on the cross. He obeyed all the way to the point of death on the cross. And the writer of Hebrews is going to say he willed to obey his father. He willed to do the will of his father. Have you ever wondered that little place in the Garden of Gethsemane when, when uh, Jesus says, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me? And it seems that Jesus is asking, is there any way that I don't have to do your will, Father? But that's not what he's asking. Um, Jesus knew that that cup meant separation from his father. He knew that what he would endure on the cross would essentially be hell. And it would be impossible for the one who had always had holy communion with his father to want separation for even a moment from his father. And even when he's praying, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, he adds, not my will, but your will be done. And what Jesus is doing is strengthening himself to will what the father wills. He is strengthening his soul to will what the Father wills, and he does, and he willingly lays down his life at the cross. And Jesus Christ willingly offers himself without sin to God, and he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Listen to this. I love Isaac Watts' old hymn. He says, Not all the blood of beast on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away the stain, but Christ, the heavenly lamb, takes all our sins away, a sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. Jesus offers spotless, infinitely holy blood to his father in his sacrifice on the cross so that that means for you, if you're in Jesus, that means peace of conscience. You can never, ever, ever do enough to please God. You can never do enough to legally put yourself in favor in the arms of the infinite and eternal God, but the infinite and eternal Son of God could, and he did, and he always did his Father's will. And notice what the writer says. I love this. Look in verse 10. By that will, by Jesus' will, by his willing to go to the cross, he willed it. He, He, 33 years, he willed. Obeying his father by that will, we have been sanctified. That means that his blood has washed our consciences and has cleansed us and has renewed us and is renewing us and continues to work. And as we said last week, uh, as the hymn writer says, that precious blood will never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. Now notice... 
Thirdly and finally, I want to point out that the writer goes on to do something very interesting. And I think that maybe there's a question that lies behind his mind, recognizing that, that the people he's writing to may ask this question. If Jesus ended the sacrifice for sin, if Jesus is the final sacrifice and there's no more sacrifice and his blood does everything necessary, and the writers already told us back in chapter 2 that by his death he defeated the devil, back in chapter 2, that by his death he defeats the world, the flesh, and the devil, and that his blood does everything we need. The question is, why doesn't it appear? Why doesn't it appear that everything's done? Why is there so much turmoil and sin and rebellion still in the world? Why do believers still struggle with sin? If, if, if it's a per- perfect sacrifice, if it's fully accepted, why doesn't God just bring about the new heavens and the new earth and just redeem us and take us out of here? I remember as a young Christian wondering, why, why did you leave me here to battle now? <laughs> I don't want to battle. Life was easy when I was just rebellious. Now I'm converted and now there's a fight. And I think the answer is that everything is done already and yet there's a day coming when we're going to see everything fully, clearly set before us. And if I can say this, and I got this from William Still, there's a sense where God is not finished using Satan to bring him more glory in a sinless way. Satan still accuses believers. He's still, and what God wants to show us is that the blood of his son continues to work and that the more we depend on him and the more we grow in our knowledge of what we have in Jesus, the more we see the overthrow of Satan and the evil host of, of uh, demonic host. And notice what he says. I love this in verse 13. It says that Jesus sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. And so even though we have all of this, even though we've been given all of this amazing depository of riches in Jesus, peace of conscience, sins forgiven, there's a sense where we are to be longing to see the completion of that when Jesus puts all of his enemies under his feet. And that day is coming. And you know what? I know it feels like it's not coming. And I know the more we live in this world, the more tempted we are to get comfortable in this world or to wonder when God's going to make things right. And the Bible assures you, just like we read in Psalm 96 earlier, that the day is coming when the Lord will come to judge the world in righteousness. He will come to make every wrong right. As Tim Keller says, everything that is... is, um, Hurtful, everything that is painful will be shown to be untrue in that day. It will pass away, and Jesus will establish his righteous reign in this world. The devil will be seen to have been overthrown in the death of Jesus. You will know in that day that that his sacrifice was sufficient. All of your wrestling in your conscience, if you're a believer, I imagine you wrestle. True believers usually do wrestle. Um wrestling for peace of conscience, on that day you're going to see all that Hebrews is telling you you have now. All that Hebrews is telling you you have now. You know, one of the things I think we've got to get our minds around, I want to say two things here as we close. First is, you have so much more in the sacrifice of Jesus than you even realize. That's, I think that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying is, Do you realize what you have in the sacrifice of Jesus? 
and we don't. It's what Lloyd-Jones says, writing to a people who have not yet come to fully enjoy what they have in Jesus. And so every Lord's Day, when we preach the gospel, it's so that we would grow deeper in our understanding of what we have in Jesus. Does your conscience trouble you because of sin? Do you, do you have a, a sense of guilt and condemnation? Then you need to look in faith to the one who ended sacrifice by the sacrifice of himself. The one who willed to do the Father's will and to shed his infinitely precious blood to take away the consciousness of sins. You know, that's a dangerous thing to say. It's actually a very dangerous thing to say. Jesus' death takes away the consciousness of sins, and yet the Bible says it. The writer of Hebrews says it. He takes away the guilt, the condemnation, the condemnatory power, the reminder that sacrifice has not yet been finished. He takes that away through the offering of himself at the cross. I want to say to you, if you're not in Jesus this morning, and chances are good, maybe somebody in here isn't, come to him. He's done everything. And what a glorious, what a glorious thing. What better news is there than everything you need has been accomplished by the God against whom you've sinned. Everything you need. The God who alone can judge you took the judgment on himself in Jesus Christ. Why would you not come to him? Why would you not hear the good news of sins forgiven in Christ alone, by faith alone, through his shed blood alone? Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would establish us in the truths that we've just heard. We pray that you would give our consciences peace, that you would take away the condemning power of sin, that you would make us to know that the guilt of sin has been laid on your son at the cross, that our sin was laid on him, that he was made sin for us, that we might be the righteousness of God in him. Father, give us a deep sense of peace and joy, a knowledge that sin has been atoned for, that the sacrifice has been offered. We pray that you would heal those who may be giving themselves over to sin. We pray that you would comfort those who are fighting against sin. We pray that you would convict and convert those who have never acknowledged their sin and who have never acknowledged their need for you, Lord Jesus. We ask you to do these things for your glory, for the exaltation of your name, and for the greatness of your grace in the gospel. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.